This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. Just a couple of words about the life of Aquinas. I've got too much material here. I'll just tell you a couple of funny stories uh, about Aquinas. Aquinas was a rather large fellow And one of the things that emerges from the literature is that one particular physical feature about him that emerges in almost every account, and that is he seems to have had an enormous head, a very large head. This will play play a a role in his death, uh, incidentally. Uh, It ought to be encouraging to know that this large man even at this point was a young man uh, in his, in his, as, his, as a student uh, was very shy very very shy didn't say much and his friends his classmates used to call him the big dumb ox the big dumb ox his professor Albert the Great said let me tell you students something this dumb ox will make a yell or a bellowing that will resound throughout the world. He was saying that Aquinas was brilliant, even if the other students didn't recognize it. So if your students, if your fellow students are saying bad things about you, just remind them of Aquinas. The other, uh, well, this other thing about Aquinas is he was one of the, have you ever met a person those really sort of cerebral types, those people who don't have really good touch with reality, they don't have good interpersonal skills, they're just sort of in the ether waves all the time. Have you ever met anybody like that? Kind of like me, right? No. Well, I've known a few people like that. Aquinas was like that. And there's one story. He'd become a very famous theologian. And he was invited to dine with the king. And so there are all these dignitaries around the table. And... Apparently, Aquinas was lost in thought, completely oblivious to the conversations going on around him. And suddenly, he slams his fist in on the table and says, Aha! I've defeated the Manichaeans! And all the time, he was engaged in this, in this theological uh, debate in his mind about the Manichaeans during this, during this meal. And the prior of his order said, Thomas, you've offended the king. And the king said, no, it's okay. Go get a pen and paper and you write down how you've defeated the Manichaeans. Anyway, the final story that I think is interesting is how he died. 48, 49 years old, quite young, uh, had been summoned to appear at the Council of Lyon. So, Aquinas gets on his horse and he's going down the road. Clip, clop, clip.
Klopp. So absorbed in his thoughts is he that he doesn't notice that a tree has a hanging, there's a limb hanging down. And he's going along and he bashes his head on a, on a hanging limb, knocks him unconscious. A few weeks later, he dies. So this very distracted, uh, cerebral sort of, this big head got caught. Uh, so anyway, interesting fellow. One other thing I probably should mention uh, before I go on to his view here, his theology, is uh, that his famous work, the Summa Theologia, or Theologica, he had finished two parts of the three parts he had set out to write in the Summa. Is that up there? Yeah. The Summa Theologica. And um, toward the end of his life, he was celebrating Mass. And apparently he had a mystical experience of some sort. And the result of this mystical experience is that he decided he would no longer write. He was, in the, he was two-thirds plus through one of the greatest works ever written, and he stopped. And so now the Summa is incomplete. Friends came to him and said, well, just why don't you just finish it and then stop? And he said, no. He said, I have seen a vision of God, and everything I have written is but straw. And suddenly, he stopped writing a few years before his death. Uh, he felt that, that his, his mystical vision of God or whatever it was uh, so, was so powerful that, it, that in light of that experience that all the logical, theological work that he had done was nothing. And so he stopped. Okay. We're going to end this class not... <laughs> You're making me feel bad. We're going to end this class. Uh, instead of giving you a uh, complete survey of uh, Thomas's theology, which would be impossible probably, I'm going to look a little more carefully at the doctrine of justification. Now, as you no doubt all know, there has been a little bit of a buzz around the campus about this question of Aquinas and justification. There have been two recent events which make Aquinas's view of justification very, very relevant and very current for us. Let me rehearse these two events that have occurred recently. First, and then we'll look at Thomas after we look at these two uh, incidents. A group of conservative, we are, I'm up here, yeah, A. A group of conservative Catholics and evangelical Protestants have issued a document in recent weeks with this title, Evangelicals and Catholics Together, The Christian Mission in the Third Millennium. 
This is a document that is primarily directed at addressing some moral questions, uh, social moral questions. The document begins by observing, rightly, that the two Christian groups that are most aggressive in evangelism in the world today and will be in the third millennium are Roman Catholics and Evangelical Protestants, the most aggressively evangelistic. They note that. This document further recognizes that there have been some conflicts between the two groups, that is, between Catholics and Evangelical Protestants, when they target the same group. This has particularly become a problem in Latin America and in Eastern Europe. Uh, Catholics are evangelizing in both of those places, and so are Evangelical Protestants, and they have clashed, in some cases leading to violence, where one group has engaged in violence, one Christian group has engaged in violence against another Christian group. The primary intention of this document is to stop the violence between these two evangelistic groups. Latin America and Eastern Europe. I think they particularly have in mind some of the clashes that have occurred in Latin America. Uh, as you probably know, uh, evangelicals are very active in Latin America, and, and they're, that's sort of historically been the territory of, of Roman Catholics. And to have these, these evangelicals come in and be so aggressive has resulted in some violence. Now, the method that this group has employed is to first to stress that there is doctrinal unity between Catholics and Evangelical Protestants on many issues. So what they're trying to do is trying to remind the Evangelical Protestants and the Catholics in Latin America and in Eastern Europe that there are many doctrinal issues on which you agree. So stop killing each other. Uh, issues like the Trinity and the deity of Christ, for example. The paper also stresses, in order to stop the killing, is that there are many social, moral issues on which Catholics and evangelical Protestants agree. Questions like abortion. We are all very well aware, I think, in this country, that evangelical Protestants and Catholics have been at the forefront of the anti-abortion movement in this country. Now, this document also says that uh, there are also doctrinal differences. They try to stress that, yes, they're not ignoring history or the theological differences, that in fact there are doctrinal differences between evangelical Protestants and Roman Catholics. And they, in fact, they list ten specific theological differences. I won't list them all. Uh, I'll just give you some general ideas. On the question of Mary, they say there are differences. The Lord's Supper, baptism, just to name a few. 
And then they add this statement, having listed ten doctrinal differences between evangelical Protestants and uh, Catholics. They say this account of differences is by no means complete. The controversy centers on this fact that the doctrine of justification is not included in that list of doctrinal differences between Roman Catholics and Evangelical Protestants. Now historically, most of you are aware that Evangelicals in particular have argued that justification is the article by which the church stands or falls. It is, if you could have one central doctrine, it would be the one. It is Luther made that very, very strong, as did Calvin. That is the, the crucial doctrine. In fact, there is a famous state, statement by Luther. He said, I am willing to support papal supremacy. That was negotiable. If the Pope would affirm justification by faith alone. Everything for Luther was bound up in that doctrine. And Calvin follows in stressing the importance of that doctrine. It has been then argued that this document, by omitting justification from the list of doctrinal differences, is tantamount to having abandoned the one article on which the church stands or falls. In other words, that the impression is given in this document that justification isn't that big of a deal. It's not even mentioned as one of the ten most important differences between Roman Catholics and Evangelical Protestants. So, Aquinas, because he is in very many respects the architect of Roman Catholic theology, his doctrine of justification is very, very relevant to this document. What makes this document especially interesting is the fact that there were 40 evangelicals and Roman Catholics who signed it. I've listed some of them up here just to make you aware. Among the Catholics, uh, you will know uh, Archbishop John O'Connor of New York, very strong anti-abortion advocate. Avery Dulles, you may not know about, a very well-known uh, Catholic theologian, and Michael Novak, the political writer, a very conservative political thinker. Among the evangelical Protestants, you can see uh, Chuck Colson signed it, uh, Bill Bright, Pat Robertson, Oz Guinness, and J.I. Packer. Now, for a Reformed seminary, it's going to be of particular interest that you have two reform types having signed a document which lists those basic differences between evangelicals and Roman Catholics and in that list the doctrine of justification is omitted so that's one of the that's why this particular document has uh, aroused some passions of late and and the reason is, is because it seems to give the impression that justification is uh, not the most important issue because it's not mentioned. 
That's the first current event that has a lot to do with Aquinas' view of justification. The second event is an article that was published just recently, this fact, this month. Uh, an article published in a well-known evangelical journal by a well-known reformed theologian. The first sentence in this article reads, Thomas Aquinas was a medieval Protestant teaching the Reformation doctrine of justification by faith alone. Did you get that? Uh, Dr. Gerstner argues that Aquinas taught essentially the same doctrine as Martin Luther and John Calvin. And because Gerstner is, a, is one of the outstanding Reformed theologians of our day, this has particular relevance, I think, to this, to this institution. Now, having cranked up your interest, let's look at Aquinas. It's in Table Talk, the May issue. The May issue. Let's look at Aquinas on justification. I think these two current issues will become our context and at least keep you interested in this as we go along. Subpoint one. Thomas affirms the priority of grace, the priority of grace in justification. Thomas affirms the priority of grace in justification. That is to say, however he defines justification, it is ultimately preceded by God's grace. That's what Aquinas teaches, without question. This idea of putting grace first in with regard to justification goes way back to Augustine. And one of the things I think I've said in this class, I know I've said it in the other class, is that to rightly understand Aquinas you must understand that he is fundamentally an Augustinian. He tries self-consciously to imitate the theology of Augustine. And, I might add, I think he's generally pretty successful. So, that's the first thing you need to know, and, and it's particularly important to know that he puts the stress on the priority of grace and justification. Second subpoint. Uh, this is still up here. Uh, this is how Thomas identif uh, defines justification. And I'm going to read this to you. And I'll, I'll elaborate. So you just, just listen about this. Four things are required for the justification of the wicked. Infusion of grace of movement of the free will toward God, of movement of the free will against sin, and the forgiveness of sins. So Thomas specifically lists four elements to his doctrine of justification. 
The first is, and you don't have to worry about the Latin. I don't know why I wrote that. I just did. It just that's in my mind. That's the way it comes up. Infusion of grace is the first element in Thomas's concept of justification. The infusion of grace. Thomas talks about this infusion of grace like this. He says it is a quote transmutation of the human soul a transmutation of the human soul. Now the word transmutation was a word used back in the Middle Ages. And it generally emerges in the context of alchemy. You know that the, the old Merlin the wizard was always trying to turn silver into gold. Well, he was talking about transmutation. That's the word used there. So this is a very strong view. It's a strong word. Transmutation. And what it really means is, is it transforms. It transmutates the human soul. There is in this infusion of grace, a moral transformation of the human soul. A moral transformation of the soul. And like all before him, Aquinas' view of the infusion of grace makes man righteous. It does not declare him righteous in any legal or forensic sense. There is no forensic or legal uh, character to his idea of justification. His idea of infusion of grace is one that results in a moral transformation of the soul and thus enables the human will to exercise itself in positive ways. Infusion of grace. God bestows His grace upon the individual, transmutates the soul, and thus enables the will to exercise itself in a positive way. This is still the first stage of the infusion of grace. This is crucial. I'll make a comment on that when I get through. No, it's not. Enables the free will to be exercised in positive ways. Now, the second element he mentions is uh, the cooperation of the free will. That's just cooperation of free will. The second key element. Now, this morally transmutated, transformed human will that has been uh, moved by the grace of God, by this infusion, this will is now able, with the help of God, to do two things. One, it's not here. One, the will can move toward God. Remember he said that? You can, you can take a step toward God. At the same time, you turn away from sin. So there are two movements of the soul that result from this infusion or this transmutation. There is a, a turn away from sin and a turning to God. And man cooperates with God 
in accomplishing those two movements. It's a cooperative effort. Justificate what this is. These are the four elements of his doctrine of justification. So within the doctrine of justification for Thomas, man participates. He exercises his will in turning away from sin and turning to God. Now, that we're talking justification right now. Justification. Now, what I think is perhaps the single most important thing in his concept of justification is his idea of merit. Aquinas is very clear that this transmutated will that results from the infusion of grace. No, we're still right here at number two. The cooperation of the free will. That that person whose will has now been enabled to turn away from sin and turn to God can do good works. Good meritorious works. Even though God has first initiated with His grace, He has done something. He has changed the will of a man so that or a woman so that He can now do good works which are meritorious. Now, when I say the word merit, you need to understand what that word means. It means that God is obligated to do something because of what you've done. God comes under your obligation. He owes you something because you do meritorious works. God is in your debt, in effect, when you talk about merit. Now, you need to understand there are two kinds of merit. Two kinds of merit. There is congruent merit and condign merit. Thomas is very clear in, with regard to justification in rejecting congruent merit. He does not mean that. Uh, that is the kind of merit that is, refers to a human doing works apart from the grace of God. Man in his own strength, utterly apart from God, doing a good work that is meritorious. Thomas rejects that. That is not what he means by merit. He rejects that kind of merit. But he does accept what is called condign merit. The man in whom God has infused grace transmutated his will so he can then do good works. They are meritorious in the second sense. They produce condign merit. Condign merit simply means merit that results from God's infusion of grace. It is not apart from God. It is not independent from God. God's grace in fact, becomes the basis upon which that meritorious work is performed. But, but he does stress that in the condign meritorious sense, a person can merit, deserve eternal life and justification. 
That's right. It, it doesn't work. This is, I mean, and the other thing that needs to be said is, although I'm presenting these logically in chronological order, they all are instantaneous at the same time. All of these these three events. As I get, to, I'll get to the third one here in just a moment. So the key thing I think in all of this is that Thomas believes in meritorious works, in justification, condign merit, not congruent merit, but merit nevertheless. That needs to be understood. So I've stated, I think I've said, okay. God is therefore obligated to reward that person who exercises his will after the infusion of grace. He is obligated to reward that merit with a reward of eternal life. Third, the third, well, actually, these are one, two, one, two, three, four. And, and if you remember the, the, the quote I read from Thomas, he includes these as two separate movements. I've made them under this one heading. So the third one here is the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is deserved in the system of Aquinas. It is merited. Because man, after God has first bestowed grace upon the individual, energized his will, enabled him to go out and do good works, which he says are meritorious, God is then under obligation to reward those meritorious works with forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Okay? Right. There. Those are two, two separate, two separate movements. So that adds up to four. Okay. Uh, yeah. There are some differences, but essentially, you will find a strong parallel. So, uh, Augustine, uh, Augustine, yes. I mean, there's, there's. Well, now he doesn't. He doesn't articulate it with that kind of degree of precision. Uh, I don't. As far as I know, Augustine does not distinguish between those two kinds of merit. What you will find in Augustine is merit talk. Uh, this idea, the Bible talks about rewards, doesn't it? Well, to Augustine and to Aquinas, that implies that there is meritorious work. Very logical. Uh, there's, there's some difficulty. I mean, it's hard to know exactly about Augustine. What I'm saying to you is, is that you will find some talk of merit in Augustine. Uh, Augustine is is a, a writer who's sort of fluid. He's not like Aquinas, who's straightforward and right to the point. So it's a little bit difficult to understand him fully. 
And we often come to Aquinas with our biases. Protestants come with their sola gratia kind of ideas. And one has to be very careful to suspend those assumptions and those biases when you come to Aquinas. Most of us find it difficult to, to throw away those biases. But I think we need to try. Uh, but but the, the facts are, without trying to interpret those facts for you, I'll let you read Augustine and decide for yourself. The facts are, he does not have injustice, does not have a forensic or a legal declaration of justification. That is not in Augustine. Luther said it was. Luther's wrong. You do not find in Augustine any legal sort of uh, declaration. And so Luther's not perfect. <laughs> Luther's a great guy, but he's not perfect. Uh, I forgot what I was saying. Augustine, uh, Augustine does not talk about a forensic declaration of righteousness or the, the, the more Lutheran view. Uh, for him, justification and sanctification are very much intertwined. And that's what you find all the way from Augustine through Aquinas all the way up to the Reformation. And what distinguishes Luther is the fact that he rejects the prevailing view of justification. He says it is not to make someone righteous. Uh, it is a legal declaration. Okay. So we move on here. So what you find ultimately in Aquinas's view is that the ground of justification the ground of justification is the righteousness of man. Now, to be sure, one needs to understand that that righteousness comes from God. But it is a righteousness that God puts in man, and on the basis of man's righteousness, he is then declared right with God. So the righteousness of man is the ground now, one could say, to help clarify this a little bit, if one were to ask, what is the ultimate cause of justification for Aquinas? He's going to say God. The ultimate cause of justification for Aquinas is God. You read his view on predestination. And you know how strong he is. But when it comes to, the, to justification... And the ground of justification, it is this transmutated soul of man that becomes righteous, that can exercise meritorious works, that becomes the ground. Let me finish this thought. In contrast to Thomas, the reformers will say that the ground of justification is not our, our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. It's this alien, this outer righteousness that is imputed to us. We don't deserve it, but it's another's righteousness. It's not our own righteousness. Even though that righteousness, according to Aquinas, came from God. We don't want to ever forget that. Very strongly stressing the priority of grace here. But the technical basis becomes the meritorious works of a righteous man. Uh, In order to appreciate this fully, the reason that Luther stressed justification 
by faith alone. The reason he included that word alone is because he wanted to disagree with this idea of merit in any sense. The, 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 the essence of the reason why Luther stressed the word alone is because he wanted to throw out all talk of merit. Not he will make no distinction between congruent or condign merit. He throws it all out. He says there is nothing that man can do to obligate God to save him. It is 100% grace, says Luther. And any talk of merit takes away from the grace of God. That's what Luther felt. Your first. You've got to make some subtle distinctions here. Yes. I have said, I've tried to stress and be fair here because I think that we Protestants do not understand very well the priority of grace in Aquinas. He believes that very, very strongly. But it's the difference between, I think, the cause and the means by which the, by which the eternal plan of God is accomplished. For Aquinas, God has in his in the eternity past has predetermined to save an individual. Okay? No question about that. He teaches that. But the means by which that comes to pass is through God working through infusing grace into the individual, enabling him then to do meritorious works. And on the basis of those meritorious works, God then rewards him with eternal salvation. Uh, let me say, uh, uh, talk about this. Maybe it would help if I drew a little bit. Uh, I shouldn't do that, should I? Uh, there's not enough room on this. What you find is uh, God, and this is salvation, and this is damnation. Now, it's pretty clear isn't it? <laughs> uh, it's pretty clear that the reformers, when they talk about damnation, that even though they are aware that God's rejection of an individual, His bypassing of an individual in eternity past, His not choosing them, however you choose to, to use whatever word you choose, that they will then fall into sin and the basis upon which they are damned is not God's will up here, but their committed sins. Evangelical Protestants believe that. But evangelical Protestants, when they talk about salvation, want to stress that salvation is due to the will of God. Aquinas wants to add something right here. Merit. Even though God has determined in eternity past to choose an individual who will eventually be saved, there is no question about it. But the means by which God brings that to pass is by infusing grace 
enabling the transmutated soul to do meritorious works. So that the basis of salvation is merit. Just like the basis of damnation is sin. It's, a, it's perfectly symmetrical. It is entirely cogent. Entirely logical. There can be no doubt about that. Uh, Protestants are asymmetrical. It's not exactly balanced out because we reject this idea here absolutely. That is the reason we the reason we have sola is because we reject that idea right there. So that salvation is based upon the will of God alone. Is grace. Yeah, and the merit of Christ. But that's But we're talking about the individual here in this case. I mean, the sin part, that's the individual sin. So you talk about the individual's merit here. You're not talking about Christ's merit. I mean, clearly there is a merit. But Luther wants to stress the merit of Christ. Absolutely. I've got to press on. Just one quick... Uh, well, Christ is part of the means by which this is accomplished. His death on the cross makes all of this possible. There is no justification apart from the death of Christ. You, you can't get into a right relationship uh, with God apart from Christ. I think, I think that needs to be said for, for Aquinas. Let me press on here to, to finish up. There are there are a few interesting other features, but I, what I want what I want you to understand is I think that one of the most distinctive differences here is on this question of merit. Uh, I want to stress that I am not making this up. Okay, <laughs> this this is really in Aquinas, and I and I, I I'm not I don't have an axe to grind. It's just there. And I think, and I, and I encourage, if, if you have any doubts about what I've said, then I challenge you to go back and to read Brother Aquinas on this question. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.